T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. This is Metroscope, an Intercom Portland Public Affairs program. I'm Preston Highfield. Joining us this time on Metroscope is Ryan Rittenhouse from Friends of the Columbia Gorge. Ryan joined Friends in 2013, and for six years prior to moving to Oregon, Ryan lived in Austin, Texas, love that town, where he worked as an environmental organizer and activist with Public Citizen and Greenpeace. Uh, He's a native of Cleveland, Ohio. He's also worked for Ohio Citizen Action and has spent months at sea volunteering for oceanic wildlife protection and conservation. Welcome, man. Thanks for coming in. Thank you for having me. And the people won't know this, but you have an outstanding beard going on right now. <laughs> you told me it's been it's been in the works for six months. Uh, well, you, well, I've had it for years, but yeah, it took about six months to grow it to its current state, and I've maintained it this way for, uh, yeah, uh, seven or eight years now. Do you know who uh, Nat Borchers is of the Portland Timbers? Uh, vaguely, not well, yeah. Okay, he's got a similar look going. Yeah. So for folks who want to put two and two together <laughs> who are listening and can't see it, uh, he's got that awesome beard going. Well, cool, man. Yeah, thanks for being here. I guess we just, uh, let's start off with... Friends of the Columbia Gorge and just what that is and what that organization is here locally and uh, kind of what you guys do. Absolutely. So uh, Friends of the Columbia Gorge was formed in 1980, and its uh, pretty much sole purpose at the time was to protect the Columbia River Gorge geologic area. And there was a lot of questions as to how to do that. Well, by 1986, they settled on the idea of a national scenic area and had gotten that passed through Congress. And Ronald Reagan... uh, a little hesitantly signed it. He wasn't really known as the biggest environmentalist in the world, but um, he did sign it and he got passed into law. So what exactly is a national scenic area? Well, there was one prior to the gorge getting set up, but it was a small one out of the middle of nowhere, California. I don't even remember exactly where it is. Uh, and there have been a few more added since then, but there aren't that many scenic areas in the country. Um, a lot of people wanted to make the gorge a national park, but there are 14, what we're just a fancy word for town, mm-hmm. in the gorge. And, you know, name me another national national park that has 14 towns in the middle of it. So it, that didn't really seem like it was going to work. A lot of the towns were really, really concerned with what would happen to their economies and everything else. If the whole area around them got turned into a national park. So national scenic area was kind of a compromise because it allows us to set up a protected area all around these towns that makes, uh, overdevelopment untenable. Um, and it preserves the existing uses for recreation or agriculture. And it also allows the urban areas to continue their own development, uh, without any hindrance from the scenic area whatsoever, as long as they don't try to go outside their urban area boundary. Okay. So, so basically, folks, for, for everyone who loves hiking the gorge and, and um, you know, wandering through nature, you guys are the great folks who help maintain that and conserve yeah, it. Yeah, in, in simple In simpler terms, for, in for, simpler for people terms, like me yes, to understand. Yes. <laughs> and and we are the, the place to go for all things gorge-related. We continue to be the main watchdog group uh, for the Gorge Commission, which is the regulatory body that was set up to enact the Scenic Area Act. 
And um, we continue to lead, we lead over a hundred hikes and outings every year. So if you're interested in going out hiking in the gorge with other people, uh, I know some people prefer to just go out on their own, but if you want to go with a group, uh, we do over a hundred hikes every year. And we usually, well, no, we don't. We always have them led by a hike leader who typically knows a lot about what you're going to see, maybe the wildflowers you're going to see, or maybe the historical aspects of uh, what you're going to see on the hike. Mm -hmm. So it's really cool. You can just go to our website, gorgefriends.org, for more info. Uh, if you become a member, you get first dibs at all the hikes. So you get mm -hmm. to you get first sign-up grabs at all the hikes. So definitely recommend people to become members. We are a 501c3 nonprofit, and almost all of our funding comes from uh, individuals who just care about the gorge. Cool. Cool. Uh, gorgefriends.org is the website I was on there earlier perusing. Uh, I was on the, the history section, and they did have that press clipping from the Oregonian old school article, President Reagan signs bill, uh, whenever it was in the 80s or something like that. Yeah, 1986. Uh, yeah, in the 86. Um, but yeah, no, that, that's cool, man. And I asked you earlier before we got on air how many hikes there are on the on the gorge, and you just <laughs> laughed. You're like, this guy's probably such an amateur because I've been on many or I shouldn't say me. I probably hiked there five, six times in the last couple of years. Yeah. But, uh, you know, you always just drive to where the, for me as like a total rookie hiker, I just drive to where the other cars are. And I'm like, Oh, that one looks cool. This looks good. Like, like this looks like a cool waterfall. I want to, I want to hike through that or swim through that. Yeah. And then I just go, but is there, is there a rough estimate of how many different hikes there are? Oh yeah. And I, I don't remember off the top of my head, but I, I want to say there's probably over a hundred <laughs> official trails out in wow. the scenic area. Um, you can go to our website again. We have mm -hmm. detailed information on every single official trail that's out in the gorge. Uh, there's just a drop down at the top for hikes. It's going to have everything there you'd ever want. And all the detailed information on those pages not only tells you uh, the name of the trail and where it's at, it tells you the elevation gain, the, to the total distance, uh, a sort of a generalized difficulty rating mm -hmm. for the hike, uh, whether it's family friendly and pet friendly, all that information. So, yeah, please do utilize our website if you want to go out hiking. Uh, it's the place to go. Fantastic. Gorgefriends.org uh, for those listening who want to check that out. So your official job title, I was looking on the website, is conservation organizer. That's right. I'm interested in how you kind of became interested and passionate about that subject because it looks like in Austin you were doing uh, something similar as an environmental organizer there as well. Yeah, so I've been an organizer and activist uh, focused on environmental issues for uh, about a decade now. And um, I got my start, I was sort of thrown into the deep end of the pool. Uh, when I graduated college, my, my degree is in communications, um, and I did a lot of focus on theater and film work, but I wasn't really sure what to do. And, you know, it's not exactly the most uh, stable industry for employment, so I wasn't sure. always having full-time employment. Uh, and an opportunity landed in my lap. My uh, half, my uh, stepbrother was on the board of directors of an uh, oceanic conservation group called Sea Shepherd, and they were looking for crew members. They, they go out on the high seas and they do direct action interference in illegal whaling and fishing activities. Um, if you've heard of the show Whale Wars on Animal Planet, hmm. have you ever heard I of that? I love Animal Planet, uh, but I haven't seen that. Well, some, some, some of your listeners have probably heard of it then. That's, okay. that's Sea Shepherd, the people featured on that show. Hmm. Uh, kind of the extreme end of environmental activism because they, they literally put themselves in the way between like uh, harpoon ships and the whales. They'll wow. get in dinghies and, and try to prevent, you know, uh, Japanese whalers typically these days from no shooting way. at whalers. Wow. And, they, and they've been doing it for decades. They did it back when the Russians were still whaling and the Russians don't do much whaling anymore. But so they've been going strong. And uh, I joined up um, one summer and back in 2005 
And I sailed with them for almost a year, uh, almost circumnavigated the globe. I went to Galapagos, where they do a lot of conservation work, and then we went across the Pacific, and we're in Melbourne, which I told you a little bit earlier for Get on uh, about a month and a half. Get on you. <laughs> uh, and saw saw a free Jamiroquai concert while I was there. That was cool. awesome. Um, and then we were, we were staging there and getting much more crew together so that we could go down to Antarctica and interfere with the illegal whaling activities that the Japanese uh, are still doing to this day down there, unfortunately. Um, and and did that and so that was i mean that was amazing it was incredible and it was amazing as an environmental activist to see a direct impact from direct action like that you know you get to actually i mean there was a day where i saw a small family pot of gray whales go mm. right by us um and i we knew that they weren't going to die that day because we were there mm -hmm. um and that's really powerful and it was really moving and re it really changed my life in a lot of ways um, but the whole time I was down there, I kept thinking in the back of my head, there's this whole global warming thing going on. Yeah. And if we don't do anything about that, well, nothing Sea Shepherd's doing is going to have mattered because all the whales will probably die anyway. Because with global warming will probably come the collapse of krill and plankton, and that's the food that the whales need to survive. So, um, so when I got back, I decided I either wanted to continue doing work in theater and film or do work in environmental activism related in at least some way to climate change. And so that's what I've been doing ever since. And in the past seven to eight years, it's mostly been the environmental side of things. Every yeah. now and then I get pulled into a, a film project, but it's mostly been and especially paycheck comes from working yeah. for <laughs> environmental groups so. yes i know i know how that goes as yeah. someone getting get my start out of college a couple of years here but that's really cool man i didn't expect that story that's i can imagine how that would kind of sway you to to lean down that path to to what you're on now um and working in the environment so as far as like you know, our listeners, I think, would probably love to hear about the gorge itself. Um, and, you know, our listeners are in Portland and southwest Washington. I mean, what uh, what do you guys how, how do you help conserve the land and conserve the gorge? I mean, what is that what is that process like? Oh, it could take the form of any number of things. I mean, we we also have a land trust. A lot of people aren't aware of that, but we have a section of our organization that's a land trust, which means we buy land. We purchase it to preserve it and protect it. Hmm. Uh, usually we're doing that in order to then get the land uh, kind of into a shape that's attractive for the public agencies that we would then sell it to so that it gets, gets into the hands of the public. Um, sometimes that just isn't going to work out, though. Um, you, people might be surprised to hear, but the public agencies, they're really picky about what land they'll decide to uh, accept, even if you wanted to donate it to them. They might not even want to accept it because mm -hmm. of any number of criteria. So that's we're sort of a middleman sometimes in that regard between private landowners and public agencies in terms of getting land back into the public, you know, Reserve, uh, but we also just um, we also just own land that we're probably going to keep uh, holding on to for a while. One of the biggest, well, the biggest by far piece of properties we own is the called the Lyle Cherry Orchard. Um, Lyle's a town out almost towards Dallasport on the Washington side of the gorge, and there's a big old cherry orchard that was up on a bluff over there. There's no cherry trees left anymore. Well, there's one. There's one cherry tree left, <laughs> uh, but there's a. It's a nice, beautiful, amazing area. Beautiful example of Eastern Gorge geology and habitat and ecosystems. And um, we're actually in the process of installing a new trail system out there too. So if you want to get out and you want to get away and uh, get a less typical Western Gorge hike, especially since the Eagle Creek Fire still has a number of the most popular hikes in the West Gorge closed. Uh, like we were talking about earlier uh, with uh, the Eagle Creek Trail and Oneonta Gorge, they're still closed and will be for some time. Uh, a, a hike like the Lyle Cherry Orchard is a great alternative. Okay. This is Ryan Rittenhouse from Friends of the Columbia Gorge joining us on Metroscope. Um, and I, I think a lot of people would be curious about an update um, about 
you know, restoration of that area that was affected by that Eagle Creek wildfire. It was obviously to anyone who's been here in Portland, uh, it was just, it was pretty devastating. I mean, certainly as someone who's I've, I've spent 24, 25 years here now, uh, my whole life pretty much. I mean, what's the update on on how the gorge is doing and how much of that area was actually affected and how much is is being restored? It's, it's kind of a big question, but I mean, I think a lot of people would, would love to hear kind of an update. Sure. So, yeah, the fire was quite large uh, yeah. and it burned through the whole Eagle Creek Trail area. And that's where it started. That's why they called it that, because they usually named the fire after the region where it starts. But it burned all over. Sometimes it was burning east. Sometimes it was burning west. Most of it, I believe, moved west. Uh, and it burned all the way to Multnomah Falls and even further west than that. Wow. Um, and it was threatening. The wind shifted and it was starting to burn again east as well. Uh, but then it, it died and the weather uh, kind of dampered it down. Um so it shut down a lot of uh, it didn't shut down overall a large percentage of the gorge because uh, the gorge is quite large. Mm -hmm. I mean, the, the the National Scenic Area is both sides of that river and it extends all the way from the border of Troutdale at Sandy uh, River all the way out to the Deschutes east of the Dalles. So there's lots to see out there that mm -hmm. wasn't impacted at all by the fire. But mm -hmm. the area that was is some of the most heavily trafficked and most beloved trails in the gorge. Yeah. Um, so that was pretty devastating for a lot of people. And the, the fire was also incredibly devastating for uh, the locals who live in the area. And that's really where we need to focus, I think, in the future is how do we make sure that the communities that live near fire prone areas are most well prepared and do we have the things in place that we need to help them recover not just from the fire itself, but the businesses that suffer losses in revenue from people not being around anymore. I mean, the fire happened at the height of their tourism season mm -hmm. out there. And so it was a huge hit to the businesses in the area. Uh, but ecologically speaking, the fire actually wasn't that bad um, from an environmental perspective. And in terms of restoration, the forest is pretty much going to take care of itself. Um, a lot of people, you know, it's it's funny because fire is so dramatic and it's so violent. And we have this visceral reaction to mm -hmm. it. But, uh, you know, and so we have there is this kind of natural urge to put it out if you see it. Right. But nobody talks about like putting out a hurricane or putting out a thunderstorm. And yet a, a wildfire is no more rare or strange to the natural world than either of those things is. Hmm. So really it's about how do we live with a wildfire and how are we going to live in concert with it? And how do we make sure that our forest practices aren't making this much worse? Because the sad truth of the matter is, is that practices like clear-cut logging um, and any, mostly any of the other disturbances that we do to our forests is what's making them more fire-prone. If you have a biologically diverse forest, if you have a forest that's allowed to get old growth trees back in it, that's going to be the most resistant to wildfire. Mm. And that's what we should be pursuing. I appreciate that. This is Ryan Rittenhouse from Friends of the Columbia Gorge joining us. Gorgefriends.org is their website. Uh, they have some cool events going on that they do and host during the summer uh, that we'll get to in just a little bit. Was it so was that was that fire was started by a kid with a firecracker? Unfortunately, yeah. Yeah. It was uh, you know, we were coming off a few weeks or even months of drought. And that's all it takes sometimes yeah. is just somebody. And, and I don't think they had ill will. I don't think they were trying to start a forest fire. They just were operating us. And, and you know, a lot of people don't realize, but all the all fireworks like that are illegal in Oregon. You're not mm -hmm. supposed to be setting them off at all. Um, if you want to see a fireworks show, there's going to be plenty of professional people doing that yeah, job. Yeah. And I encourage people to stick to that. I actually used to be a pyrotechnician, a licensed pyrotechnician um, at a Six Flags back in Ohio. Um, so I love fireworks. Yeah. I just I just don't want people putting themselves at danger and putting, you know, wild <laughs> wild areas and, and more importantly, people's homes and uh, sure. in danger. It's also if you do it in town, I personally have a dog that gets PTSD from fireworks. Oh, yeah. So I, I, I 
plead with people in my neighborhood, please don't set off fireworks. <laughs> I do too. Yeah, I think that's every dog owner's worst nightmare is the 4th of July yeah. when you're like, okay, do we take this dog to the garage? <laughs> or what do we do with the dog? Do we blast music in the house? I know we had, well, I've had two two dogs. One of them had the PTSD thing going. The other one just doesn't, doesn't bat an eye. Some yeah, of them don't. Yeah, it's weird. Some of yeah. them really don't care. Others, they start shaking and drooling and losing their minds and uh, yeah, it's really a shame. But. Well, I was an unlicensed pyrotechnic when I was younger. <laughs> as, a lot of, a lot a lot of young of, people are. A yes. lot of people. Uh, <laughs> when I, you know, when I was 12, me and my friends lighting up those, you know, nothing crazy, just those little firecrackers or whatever. Yeah. But man, that was fun. Um, is there anything, I guess, just to kind of put a bow on that part of this conversation is, I mean, what's what are kind of the main steps that maybe you guys take in the gorge or just in general that we could take as, as a public to try to help prevent uh, or at least reduce or catch those wildfires quicker maybe um, so that something like what happened uh, a couple summers ago doesn't happen again. Well, really what we're finding and what the forest ecologists and the experts who are studying wildfires and the impacts on communities are showing is that really in terms of mitigating impacts to people and our homes is really within about 100 feet of buildings and homes. So if you're talking about an area that's outside of that parameter, you pretty much don't have to worry about it. Most of the fires that burn down people's uh, homes and dwellings or other buildings are from not the fire directly. It's from the ember storm, they call mm. it, which is the embers that float on the wind mm -hmm. and settle like in people's gutters. Uh, the number one thing that leads to a house burning down wow. is a clogged gutter because wow. embers fall in it and they set that tinder on fire and that's what burns the house down. Wow. So fireproofing your home if you live in a fire-prone area, that's by far the best thing you can do to ensure that your property gets protected is just being what they call fire safe. Okay. There's lots of guidelines out there to help you with that. Okay. Um, just look up fire safe online. We have like four minutes left here. Oh, so boy. I, I know we, we got going on some tangents. <laughs> There's a lot to talk about. But I know you wanted to talk about um, what you've been working on for the last six years or so, the oil and coal trains and terminals in the Portland area and yeah. how you think that's affecting the environment. Go ahead and, and talk to us about that. Yeah, I'll try to wrap up six years in just a few minutes. <laughs> um, so yeah, first and foremost, Friends is a conservation group. And so we've been a part of two uh, big coalitions in the last six years called the Power Pass Coal Coalition and the Stand Up to Oil Coalitions. And those are some of the biggest environmental coalitions I've ever seen or been a part of, really. Uh, they've been nonprofit groups and individuals, tribes, uh, Native American tribes and elected officials all throughout British Columbia, Oregon, Washington, Idaho, Montana, and Wyoming. And the goal of these has been to stop what were new proposals to bring large oil and coal export facilities to the West Coast. And there were 12 of them in total over the last six years. And thankfully, the coalitions stopped all 12 of them. So it was a huge environmental success. Um, but in that process, we were kind of keeping our eye out for what would the oil companies do next. And what's happening now is one of the things we expected, which is they're looking at existing old facilities uh, that they can buy and sort of retrofit. And instead of having to get a whole new permit, they just amend an existing permit for an existing facility. And they're mm -hmm. able to switch the operations of that facility over to exporting crude oil. And that's what's happening right here in Portland. There's a number of facilities that they're trying to do this with throughout the Northwest, but there's one right here in Portland called Zenith. And it's right down uh, in the industrial park in North Portland. Uh, it used to be an asphalt facility, so that they used to just mix up asphalt there. And But they have all these large holding tanks. So an oil company came in because the, I forget what Zenith was called. Was it Arc Logistics? Something like that. Uh, when they were making asphalt. And they kind of stopped making asphalt and the facility had been lying dormant. So this oil company came in bought it up, and they want to turn all those holding tanks into crude oil holding tanks and simply act as a way station 
to bring in oil trains down through the Columbia Gorge, uh, through Portland, and offload them and put them on ships and probably ship the crude oil overseas to Asia. Now, why is this a problem? Well, None of this crude oil is needed for domestic consumption, certainly not local consumption. And this oil is typically coming from one of two places, either the tar sands in Canada, in Alberta, Canada, or the Bakken oil fields in North Dakota, which is obtained through hydraulic fracturing or fracking, as they call it. And a lot of people might have heard of that before with methane gas fracking. They can also do it with petroleum. And this isn't normal crude oil like with the Beverly Hillbillies shooting a bullet in the ground and it bubbling up to the surface. Uh, with hydraulic fracturing, they have to pump this chemical mixture of high pressure pressured water mixed with all these uh, toxic uh, additives underground, deep underground, and they create these micro earthquakes where they frack apart shale formations, and that releases massive amounts of uh, propane, butane, and petroleum. And they collect all that and then put it in these tanker cars and sh ship it out this way. Well, th that mix of fossil fuels has much more propane and butane in it than typical normal crude oil. And that's been causing these trains when they derail, when there's an accident, to not just spill oil, which is bad enough, but oftentimes, most of the time, these oil tankers blow up. And we saw that happen in Canada in, uh, I think it was 2013, um, in Lac Megantique. Um, and that derailment happened right in the middle of a town, and the train was moving really fast. So most of the train cars blew up, and it leveled the entire town and it, uh, downtown area, and it killed 47 people. Wow. Uh, and we had our own disaster here in the gorge out in Mosier, Oregon. Luckily, nobody was killed in that one because the train wasn't moving very quickly, and so the cars didn't explode. They just leaked their contents, and they caught on fire. But if that train had been moving much faster, it, they probably would have started blowing up the cars. Um, the school was only about 400 feet from where the derailment happened, and school was in session. They had to evacuate the whole town of Mosier. It shut down I-5 for the whole day, and it was just a disaster, but it could have been much worse. Um, so we, we really are concerned about that product. Also, the tar sands in Canada, that stuff typically doesn't explode, but it's a much, much dirtier form of oil. It's, it's what it sounds like. It's this tarry, sand-like substance that's incredibly difficult to mine and process, uses a lot of energy in the process of extracting it, and it's much more pollutive and toxic than typical crude oil. So we don't want either coming through this area. There's a lot of people in the Portland community upset about this, talking to city council. I encourage everybody to get involved. Uh, the mayor uh, is listening to us as a city council, and they want to try to figure out a way to say no to this new infrastructure development for these dirtier forms of oil. Oil. They've already actually passed a, an, an ordinance against new fossil fuel infrastructure. But the concern is that since this was an existing facility, that maybe it's going to weasel its way around that mm -hmm. ordinance. So they're trying to figure out a legal way to apply that ordinance to this facility. And we just need to keep spreading awareness and keep getting pressure where it's required so that we can prevent this new investment in dirtier forms of fossil fuel. Yeah. Where, where, I mean, where do we stand right now in the, in the I guess, the battle between the those who are, who are doing good and trying to protect the environment and those who are uh, seeking money through basically... Uh, oil manufacturing and then sending it off to to Asia, like you were saying earlier. I mean, is there a, you know, is there are you guys in not not in court against each other? I guess, but how how does that work and where are we at in like kind of the battle? Right. Well, and you know, don't get me wrong. Like I said, we we've been successful at stopping twelve brand new yeah. giant proposals, so it's not all bad news. Mm -hmm. uh, so we're we're forcing the fossil fuel companies to take more and more drastic measures and get more and more creative with what they're trying to do, and that's a good sign. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, in terms of this specific one, we are right now talking to the uh, city council of Portland. Mm -hmm. They they they've said they're going to set up a public workshop on this issue. 
issue where people mm-hmm. will be able to public comment. I don't have a date or a time yet on that, but uh, try to stay tuned. Uh, if you want to stay in the loop on that, go to our website and sign up for our action alerts. We have a number of different alerts you can get, like hiking um, or uh, monthly news or my action alerts that I send out personally. And I'll let people know through that alert email system when uh, that public workshop happens. Uh, so please come, please attend. Uh, there's also lawyers that work for the coalition organizations of which Friends is only one um, that are working very hard with the city and trying to figure out what the legal options are to challenge uh, Zenith and the oil companies behind it. Cool. Well, Ryan, thank you very much for coming in. I know that we have we could have asked even more. I guess you guys have an event. Maybe we can ask you about that really quickly. The 39th annual picnic in paradise coming up Sunday, June 23rd. Um, in Cascade Locks, Oregon. I was on your guys' event calendar. Mm-hmm. And again, for people who are interested, gorgefriends.org is the website. You can basically learn more about what Ryan and I have been discussing. And then also uh, check out their events calendar on there. I know you guys just had uh, an event recently, the Gorge on Tap, earlier this June. But um, yeah, some summer events that you guys have coming up, maybe particularly the Picnic in Paradise, uh, if you want to just uh, take a chance and, and tell people what they could expect if they attend that. Yeah, great. Yeah, we, we hold one every year, um, and we do a lot of other events. Gorge on Tap we hold four times a year. The next one will be out in the Dalles, I believe, um, and then we have one in Portland in the fall. Uh, but, yeah, the Picnic in Paradise, uh, come on out uh, next uh, Sunday uh, and uh, hang out with us. Bring your picnic basket with your lunch. We'll provide uh, some beer and dessert, Ooh, um, nice. and we will provide live music as well. Wow. Uh, we used to do uh, short talks, but I, I think we're scaling back on that. Uh, we do talks at Gorge on Tap where we talk about, like I did here, mm-hmm. our policy and updates. But at the picnic, we're trying to get more laid back. But there'll be information tables there where you can find out more about what we do. We do a lot. I'm, I'm the conservation organizer, but we have all kinds of stuff that we do, not just the hiking program but the, and at the land trust. But we have a vision called Gorge Towns to Trails of building a linking loop hike system that goes throughout the entire gorge someday. We're doing all kinds of stuff. So, yeah, come out, meet us, meet our maybe become a member yourself and enjoy a beautiful picnic and beautiful Cascade Locks. It should be a great day. You sold me. I'm absolutely sold. Thank, thank, thanks for coming in. Hey, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. We were talking today with Ryan Rittenhouse from Friends of the Columbia Gorge. Metroscope is an Intercom Portland Public Affairs program. I'm Preston Highfield. If you're involved with a nonprofit or public affairs organization, or if you have an idea for an upcoming show, I'd like to hear from you. Visit MetroscopePDX.com and submit your ideas. You can also go to this station's website and submit your information there. Thanks for listening to Metroscope and enjoy the rest of your weekend.